Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, this week my daughter reminded my wife and me that normally at this time of year, our family would be up in Montreal, Canada. The trip has become a bit of an annual tradition, but with the travel restrictions, sadly, we are bereft of our opportunity to visit our neighbors to the north. That's why I'm overjoyed to have on the show this week two Canadian guests from terrific religion-focused podcasts I've encountered during the pandemic. Dalraj Singh, one of the hosts of the Experience Sikhi podcast, and Emma Prestwich, digital editor of Broadview, a magazine published by the United Church of Canada. One of the things I've enjoyed so much about this new series of episodes with other religion-based podcast hosts is learning about traditions I hadn't previously interacted with. My conversation was a great opportunity to learn more about Sikhi, often called Sikhism, and the UCC tradition. Have a listen. I'm very excited to have Dalraj Singh from the Experience Sikhi podcast, one of the hosts there, and Emma Prestwich, who's digital editor of Broadview, a magazine that's put out by the United Church of Canada. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. And very cool to have a couple of Canucks out of Toronto, or Toronto area, I should say. Dalraj, you're, you're in uh, it's Branston, is that right? Well, uh, I live in Markham, but the Experience organization uh, operates out of Brampton. But yeah, Brampton. it's all of the Toronto area. Yeah, and Emma, you're in Toronto proper? Yes, yeah. Dalraj was, was telling me when we, when we first talked that he was willing to overlook my DC location because of his, um, <laughs> he's, he's got a little bit of a sore spot because of his maple leaves. Are you a hardcore hockey fan as well? I mean, my allegiances have shifted over the years. I was always a bit of a bandwagon <laughs> fan, but oh, I'm wow. from BC. I know I'm from BC originally. And so when I was younger, right. I had to support the Canucks out of, I don't know, just geographic proximity. Um, Got it. And that one, the playoffs in 2011 were so heartbreaking because they got so close. Um, But I've been living in Toronto for more than a decade now. And I sort of flip back and forth depending on the, (laughs) well, Raj, this might be (laughs) very upsetting to you that I can just sort of go back and forth. But I pay attention to what's happening with the Canucks, but um, we'll get excited if the Leafs are doing well. I can appreciate that, that excitement. That's, That's enough for us Leafs fans. And on on my on my end, I can identify a hockey puck and distinguish it from a baseball. So I will. You can't see me, but I'm smiling and nodding very politely. <laughs> Dalrosh, I wanted to to start with you. The idea of the Sikh community being a prominent religious minority is something that um, is is something folks in particularly in that urban or suburban area. In Canada, might might have as a as a, a commonplace experience um, that we here in in the U.S. really don't have, except in in pretty select locations. You know, I myself, um, I think I was probably well into my twenties before I ever met anybody from from a sick background. So I'm I'm curious. Um, for yourself, what was what was uh, growing up in that area like for you? I know that. Um, 
you know, obviously immigrant communities, there can be some tensions, um, particularly as folks are getting established, but it sounds like you had, you know, a, 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 st a strong supportive community around you as well. So I'm curious what, what uh, that dynamic was like for you as a youth. Um, I'd like to believe I was fairly lucky. Um, in my area, um, there's only one Gordora, which is a Sikh temple, whereas in Brampton there are many, um, like tens, if not, if not more. Um, whereas mm -hmm. in my area, for like uh, a huge, I guess, region, there was only the one Gordora. So our community would meet at that one spot every, like whenever we had congregation, or we also have a parade in September, which is called a Nagarkitan. So the community was fairly small in this area, but since we all had just that one spot, everyone would gather and the gatherings would turn fairly large. Um, and because of that, um, the programs we used to have, we used to have a soccer league. We used to have um, a, a Gurmat school within the Gurdwara. So we all, like kids my age, we would all become friends um, and then grow up together. So the experience was fairly um, there wasn't much tension, especially in and around my area. There's a lot of diversity. Um, mm -hmm. We have a mosque down the street from the Gurdwara. We have a man, like a mandir in the northern direction. We have the Gurdwara. Um, we have churches on uh, on both sides. So, and the high school I went to is very diverse as well. So the experience wasn't wasn't rough. There were fewer six in my area initially, um, especially when I was going through school. But that didn't necessarily um, like turn people off from socializing with me or are trying to talk to me and understand my views. And as I grew older and understood them a bit better, um, that's when Brampton comes in and I'm going more back and forth talking to people in Brampton. So the experience growing up was, was fairly pleasant. Um, can't say the same for some of the older immigrant generations that had to, again, sometimes compromise values or sacrifice a lot in order to just get a living. Um, but I feel like uh, I've been very blessed to, to have the luxury to, to balance both like career social life and religion at the same time and have religion as one of my priorities. Well, I definitely want to come back to that idea of, of uh, this generational perspective, you know, and, and uh, what you've learned from uh, the elder generation that was in large part, you know, the first uh, generation of, of six um, that came uh, to Canada. Um, but Emma, when you grew up in, in BC, in British Columbia, what was it like for, for you? Did you interact with um, the Sikh community very much? No, not, not very much at all, no. I mean, in the lower mainland of BC, uh, in Surrey particularly, but in, uh, yeah, in Vancouver and surrounding communities, I know there's a bigger Sikh community there, but uh, not a huge one in Victoria at least when I was growing up in the in the 90s and early 2000s. And so it actually wasn't until I moved to Toronto that I, yeah, that I met sick people, that I had a chance to learn more about uh, about that faith and that community. Um, it's, there, there isn't as much religious diversity out on the West Coast in Victoria in general. Um, it's part of it is that it's, uh, I mean, it's a smaller community. Um, in the grand scheme of things, there's maybe 350, 400,000 people. But um, no, I not very much at all. What was your religious formation like growing up? So I was baptized in the United Church of Canada. So from, from, the, uh, from the moment that I was quite small, I went to church with my family and, and that community, which is a very progressive, supportive, sort of social justice focused church community was pretty formative for me. And so 
uh, made a conscious choice when I was 13 to be confirmed into that church and to make that, not just that community, but um, that theology and those values part of my life. And so Mm -hmm. my involvement has changed over the years and definitely have sort of waxed and waned, I guess, in terms of my in terms of my connection with it, um, particularly in my 20s, but it's still a big part of my life. And um, yeah, incredibly grateful for that. And the publication I work for has its roots in the United Church. So. And can you give for, for folks who don't um, know about the United Church of Canada? I mean, I'm, I'm actually lear- learning about it um, myself. Can you talk a little bit about the, the history and, and what is it that, that is distinct about, about that community and tradition? Sure. So the United Church was formed of three Protestant, Christian Protestant denominations in 1925. And part of it was a decision that these churches wanted to combine their memberships to create a bigger denomination. A little bit of it had to do with a an opposition to Catholicism um, at the time, but it, for a number of years, was a, was a church that had similar theology and values to the Methodist Church or the Lutherans, but um, over the years, what has made it particularly distinct is its commitment to social justice, um, in for all people, but also a, a very, very open doors. And so while the Bible is, is the sort of shared standard for United Church folks, um, there is no particular creed that United Church members are, uh, are required to align with. So there's a lot of openness um, to people who would like to be involved in the church for whatever reason. Um, mm. which is a which is a hallmark of it that I that I find really wonderful. Was there something in a, a particular memory from your upbringing that sort of instilled in you those progressive values? There were a couple, I would say. I mean, first of all was the the church's very um, sort of wonderful affirming attitude towards LGBTQ people. And um, I mean, right before I was born, United Church became um, the first one to ordain gays and lesbians. And so that was a, I mean, that sort of queer affirmation was a a great part of my upbringing. That was something that was discussed around the dinner table, that sort of thing? Absolutely. And very much, uh, very much part of our church community. Uh, The uh, church that I grew up in out in Victoria, there was a street festival we would hold every year. And the sort of part of downtown Victoria that my uh, church first met was in uh, there were a number of other, not just church communities, but there was a synagogue um, and there was a mosque nearby as well. And um, the minister at the time had made a great effort to connect with the leadership from those faith communities and invite them to the street festival. And that was something that hadn't really been done in, mm. and this was in the mid to late 90s. And so that was, I mean, it took someone's individual effort, but that was a wonderful sort of interfaith introduction for me, um, just to to learn more about other faith traditions and just to see people um, from other communities. I was going to say in terms of sort of interfaith connection, and I mean, part of the reason I lament that it doesn't seem like there's been as much sort of interfaith work, um, at least in the Toronto area, is that um, sort of gathering places are in different parts of the city. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's... Uh, 
I mean, there are, I think United Church is scattered everywhere, but the, the churches that I'm familiar with are, I mean, in, in a certain part of downtown, whereas, yeah, there's more Gurdwaras that are out in, in Brampton and northern yeah. part of the city and, and many other um, like synagogues are in northern Toronto. Generally, that's where many of them are, 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 are close to. So there isn't, I mean, geographic location isn't everything, but it often is. It's the people that you see when you're walking down the street or who are part of your neighborhood. And so, yeah, I, I mean, it's probably a better place for learning about other faiths a better city for that just because of the sheer number of people. But mm-hmm. um, smaller communities, I think, can sometimes be better just because you, you run across people. Yeah, no, that's that's totally true. I think that you know, that's one of the things that always strikes me about interfaith work. And, and I mean, frankly, it's, you know, part of the, the things that, um, part of the journey of this show, what led to doing this show is coming out of interfaith organizing in the D.C. area. And, and it's a much smaller city than Toronto. But if you take in the whole D.C. area, um, you know, in, including the outer lying suburbs, and since there is a lot of um, daily, you know, migration because of uh, uh, commuting and everything like that, there is a lot of interaction between the county and the district itself. Um, but ultimately, you're right. You know, when you talk about neighborhood by neighborhood, you're much more likely to organize and do crossover with you know, institutions that are right there on your block or folks that are right there in your in your neighborhood. So um, where you can maybe do institutional level, you know, cooperation, advocacy and everything on on a on a national or regional or depending on the size of the city, citywide level, um, oftentimes the best interreligious interfaith engagement happens in, in a much more micro way, right? Where you're, where you're working, working um, just with a handful of people who get to know each other on a personal level, who you know, develop that, that trust and are able to be vulnerable and open up about, about their tradition and, and really wanna serve together. Mm-hmm. Delroge, the Sikh community is a community, like I said, that I, I wasn't familiar with growing up and one of the exciting things about interfaith engagement for me personally is encountering a, a tradition that I really have, have no um, background in because it's a total open, open field, right? And the more people that you, you find out and learn about and, and interact with, you learn the history um, and, and sort of the culture of a community and you get a, a sense of the tenants, but you also get a sense of the personal journeys of those individual people. So I wanted to hear a little bit about, about you know, your journey and, and how it is that you have approached your Sikhi. Um, so I guess my journey would begin with my mom. Um, I don't come from a necessarily religious family, but my mom grew up seeing her parents pray regularly, um, go to the Gurdwara, um, especially back in India and the villages, um, having special days marked off for like the birth occasions of our gurus um, called Gurpurj. Those would be like national holidays or at least state holidays. Um, So I remember that I used to see her pray often um, and she would always, she would teach me like small um, Shabads, which are hymns, um, connect them to each guru. and, And that was how I was brought up as a very young child. Um, and then I started going to the Gurdwara to learn Punjabi, um, which is our language. Um, Gurmukhi is also the script that 
um, Guru Granth Sahib Ji, our Guru, our holy scripture is written in. Um, once I started learning that, um, I was also learning history in the same classes. I was also learning um, Gurmat values, Sikh values, and how to apply them into our life. I started that around age five, and I finished, um, I guess, graduated from Punjabi class at age 10. And my mom at the same time was like, I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. Um, if you've learned Punjabi um, as well as you have, I want you to teach as well. So she asked the oh, student wow. to teach the, the youngest class. And I started teaching and I taught from age 10 up until the end of high school, I believe. Um, and during that time, um, I started getting introduced to the Experience Key organization. Um, one of my first encounters was at an exhibit that they did. Um, at Scarborough Godora, which was basically um, regarding the Sikh genocide of 1984. And a couple months after that, we had Turban Up in downtown Toronto. And I went as a volunteer, um, again, seeing my community, um, uh, mostly from Brampton, but seeing my people there um, in much larger numbers was very eye-opening. One of the things that you told me, Dalraj, when we spoke initially, that you're you're the only Amritari uh, Sikh in your in your family, right? You're the only yeah. baptized uh, Sikh, and and I wanted to um, hear a little bit about your your family background and why it is that you feel like the rest of your family has made that decision, and then why you feel you've made a different connection to your Sikhi. Um, I feel that has a lot to do with uh, the whole immigrant family vibe. So uh, my grandfather had initially immigrated from India to England in the 90s, in the 1900s, and then immigrated back to India. Um, a couple of my uncles and aunts were born in England, and then my father, who was the youngest of, out of all of his siblings, was born back in India. And after that, they decided to immigrate to Canada in the late 80s. Um, during that time, again, it was more of a, of a struggle for survival, um, finding a place to stay, um, working as soon as you got out of high school, um, you know, uh, creating a sustainable lifestyle for the entire family. Um, so religion wasn't necessarily a priority at that point in time for um, at least my dad's side. Um, for my mom, it was, again, I, not like top priority, but she still kept it an integral part of her life. Um, she used to pray daily. She, um, she again, with her kids, she, she liked taking us to the Gurdwara and keeping us there because she felt if out of all things, or if out of all places, this was a nice safe space where we could um, learn. And um, so for that reason, my, my dad's side, um, all my cousins were never necessarily introduced to Sikhi as I was um, because my dad, his siblings, parents, um, and then again, siblings, spouses, they, they weren't necessarily uh, viewing religion as a priority because it was, more of a, it was more of a fight for survival. And then when we get to my generation, um, it, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a fight anymore. It was more that we've created a sustainable lifestyle. We're settled in Canada, and uh, my mom felt that now we have like the time, resources to learn and get connected at, at at least a base level. And then because of the time I spent at the Gordora, I, I know um, a couple of people used to joke around that the Gordora was literally my second home, um, which it was. I used to spend my weekends there. I used to spend weeknights coaching soccer there. Um, I spent a lot of time at the Gordora, and I feel like that kind of created that one connection, um, just to the, that space between um, uh, between me and my community. And then after, as I grew older, um, I feel like, again, I've had the luxury of studying academically. 
Um, so just being able to, to research, um, research thoroughly, uh, thoroughly and just learn more along the way, that kind of shifted my I, uh, set of priorities. It wasn't as um, career focused. It still is. Career is very important, but it, um, I started viewing religion as something bigger than career. Um, understanding the theology and having the time to actually research and understand the theology. Um, and that's why I would say I went this route. I'm a lot faster than even I had imagined. Um, my mom probably didn't imagine I'd, I'd be this quick with it either. Um, but uh, she did support it all the way through. Um, and uh, the rest of the family is more like they're learning with me. Um, a lot of the things I do are very new to them or they haven't seen a person do them. They've heard of them maybe. Um, so it's more like just explaining and helping them understand along the way as well. It's interesting listening to what I remember one of the comments on, on your show, one of the, I can't remember if it was a host or a guest, but somebody was saying that, um, you know, that Siki should actually be the, the center, the priority, you know, mm-hmm. around which decisions around career and, and yeah. um, your other pursuits are made. So it's interesting to hear that generationally, that was that was sort of an outside opinion because of that you know survival um, mentality that that um, your parents' generation was undergoing, um, and now in the second generation there is a little bit more of this introspection, the self reflection, and focus on the spiritual things. Exactly. As a kid, I'd always wanted to be baptized. Um, that's what we call an umrsanjad when you become a Khalsa Sikh versus just a Sikh. Um, I'd always had that thought in mind, but when I, I went through high school, um, I I wasn't as committed to the idea. I was like, maybe it's a it's something I want to pursue when, you know, I'm I'm established in my career field, or you know, maybe later down in life once I have kids and I don't need to worry about other things. Um, but as I got more and more connected with the organization and the people and the sangha, the congregation, um, it just felt like this this was doable at my age. It wasn't as scary as some people had made it out to be. That oh, it's a huge commitment. Um, you know, some people get um, very. There's a word in, in Punjabi called katter, which uh, can be translated to either uh, very strict in what you believe in, or it could be like dedicated to your cause, really truly believing in in what you believe and. Another definition could just be like very extreme with your views or like fundamentalist. Um, and I realized that like being a young kid um, in this sphere or just connecting with my religion didn't necessarily um, wasn't necessarily a bad thing. If anything, it brought focus to my life. It allowed me to connect with a lot of great individuals, um, learn about our history, learn about our gurus, learn about all these great personalities we've had and the experiences, the spiritual experiences that they've had and one day striving to to get there. And then luckily, again, through all this engagement with the organization and with the people that were there, I decided to, um, I had initially decided to to take Amrit or to to be initiated into the Khalsa in September of 2018, Um, but I still wasn't too sure. I was still a bit worried that I may not be able to like fulfill the code of conduct um, to be a true Khalsa Sikh. I knew the next one, the next um, ceremony would be in April of 2019. So I took those six months to just practice, um, practice being a baptized Sikh. And uh, lucky enough, in April 2019, I, w- I was blessed with Amrit. And from since then, I've been a baptized Sikh. And uh, a Sikh, being a Sikh is all about learning. Um, taking Amrit was that first step. And now it's just been in, um, learning as much as I can 
continuing to learn. There's no there's no end to it. Um, but as long as there's there's like the initiative and intention behind it, that's that's been the journey uh, since then. Emma, so it sounds like you also have been on a journey in in terms of your relationship with your um, faith tradition and and community. the The way that I found out about you was was through. Um, your show that you did for a while with with HuffPost Canada uh, called Congregation, and I wanted to just hear a little bit about about how you um, got into journalism and and how that's been uh, an opportunity to to explore religion and the intersection between religion and culture and politics in Canada. Sure. So I always loved writing and always found it to be such a transformative way for me to work through emotions or work through ideas. And journalism wasn't something I was aware of as an opportunity necessarily. I knew it was a job that people had, but I it wasn't until sort of later high school years that I actually started to consider it as something I might do. And um, definitely went through a few years of thinking I would become a poet, which while would have been a sort of it's a beautiful way of express a beautiful form of expression i after exploring that a little bit i did a year of school in more sort of creative writing realized mm. that i wanted to be more engaged with the world around me and so journalism was a perfect way to do that it was a way to a way to write while talking to people who whose stories I didn't understand or were going through something that I wanted to learn more about and also potentially affect some change, which was something that, especially at the point where I was considering journalism as a career, was something I really felt an itch to do. And my faith mm. tradition, it, it being a church that really believes in, in living out um, your commitment, was, would have been a perfect fit. So mm -hmm. that was something I moved to Toronto to go to school for. And mm -hmm. that was definitely a big change to, to leave everyone that I knew and move to Canada's biggest city. Um, <laughs> so that was, in retrospect, I remember not thinking it was such a big deal, but it's also not something that that many people do. And so it took many years to, to rebuild a community, I would say. But I think... Part of it was that my education and the type of sort of straightforward news writing I was doing or general interest stories, I didn't see that many examples of what it was like to integrate stories about faith or personal conviction into your writing and wasn't quite sure how to do that. And then there were, there were a few sort of interview podcasts that I had been listening to where the hosts would actually engage their guests on those topics. And it also, that coincided with a time in my previous job at HuffPost Canada where, where my colleagues and I were starting to um, explore new creative projects and we were encouraged to do that. And so I thought, how incredible would it be if I could use some of this spare time and some of these resources that I'm being afforded to talk to people about their faith? And it, it coincided with a time where I was trying to figure out my relationship with it and part of it was that I, I didn't have that many people around me sort of in a, in a social setting who had those similar convictions. Um, and it was a solo project. So I was trying to figure out what my connection to it was and what I could offer. 
and not only talking to other people about their faith, mostly young people. So the, the thrust of the podcast was talking to other young adults about their own personal convictions and the journeys they had been on. That also was an opportunity for me to work through some of the doubts I was having and the questions um, about my connection to Christianity and to my particular brand of it, I guess. And so that was that was an unexpected positive from it. Uh, journalism is not about telling your own story, but I was able to incidentally do that because of the because of the uh, podcast. So. Yeah. So, w- what do you think? One of the the you know takeaways, or if you had any breakthroughs through that experience, um, and particularly uh, in light of the fact that now you're at Broadview with your your UCC publication. Yeah. I mean, part of the issue I was having was that I wasn't sure exactly what my role was in that community at that given time, and what encouraged me after speaking to my guests was that a continued commitment is key and to continue to stay engaged even when it gets difficult um, is a big is a big tenet I think for a lot of people who are either going through some personal struggles or unsure about their own their own spiritual beliefs which for many of us waxes and wanes depending on depending on the time period um, so I was really encouraged by the by the continued commitment and the consistency of the people that I talked to. Um, and that was, that encouraged me to stay connected to the church. And incidentally, sort of after I finished that project, there was, I mean, once again, I, I wasn't sure how much to chalk this up to just the situation that had happened, but a, a former colleague had approached me uh, about uh, a possible a possible role at, at Broadview. And this was a publication that I had always admired just because of its willingness to engage with stories about conviction and social justice and all the difficult ethical issues that arise in those. And it was just at that time that I was struggling a little bit and was given this opportunity to to and actually engage with those topics and bring journalism and and my faith together. So it was incredibly exciting and I think is a way that I try to to live out my faith. Mm. Um is is through my work and I'm lucky to be able to do that. Is there one particular story that stands out to you that has been meaning for you, meaningful for you in your in your personal journey that really helped move the needle a little bit for you? That's a good question. I what I have really in this particular situation where faith communities are because of the pandemic haven't been able to gather. I've I've really enjoyed both working on, so editing and writing stories about what it means to to be church. And I I mean the church, the particular physical building was was the one way that I thought about gathering when I was younger. And there are, first of all, so many writers who were trying to think of what it means to be a church right now. 
And so mm -hmm. I've, I've really enjoyed engaging with all those sorts of stories because as much mm -hmm. as your own continued commitment to your faith and the ways we try and care for each other during this time um, are still there without face-to-face -face connection, without the ability to, to hug someone when they need some support. Um, just without the ability to get together, there's so much that's lost. And I know mm -hmm. that I've missed my church so much um, right now. And so the stories about how people are trying to stay connected to one another and continuing to practice right now have been, have been really meaningful for me. And I've struggled with them at times. Mm -hmm. Even though there are so many uh, church communities that are, that are bravely trying a, a Zoom medium, for example, to do services right. um, and often doing a fantastic job of it. I remember feeling a little bit morose about it at the beginning. <laughs> I've yeah, been impressed yeah. by people's innovation, but also just, this is, there's no way this is the same. I heard somebody say recently, um, it is a substitute, but it's a, <laughs> it can be a poor substitute for, <laughs> for being with people. Absolutely, and, and that's yeah. for sure true. So, yeah. but now we're at a point where this is the new normal for at least the next while and right. no one wants to compromise the safety of, of any of their members, especially the more vulnerable ones to, to get back together before it's safe. But yeah, I've been encouraged by the ways that church communities and even our writers are, are looking for ways to, to approach that topic right now. Well, I, I could go on and on forever with, with, a, with a million questions for both of you, but the, the second part of our show is that we like to have our guests um, ask each other questions about their tradition and uh, see about the things that have been interesting to you or that you would like to follow up on. So, um, Dalraj, do you have any questions for Emma? Um, I do have a few. I'll just start um, with two. So, baptism in, in Sikhi is... is I guess optional in a sense that not everyone has to be baptized and my understanding of it was that in Christianity everyone gets baptized so um, if you could like expand on what being baptized um, in your specific community means and uh, my second question was um, written media we don't do a lot of it at ES um, but it is something like we've always wanted to explore um, maybe not a publication but having blogs etc um, how do you see your written publications like uh, impacting people? Um, does it does it draw people in? Is it is it more there for a resource for people to have to seek inspiration or just like um, like relate to someone, connect to someone? What's the purpose of written media and how uh, effective is it? Uh, I'd, I'd like to start off with those two. Yeah, so baptism in the United Church is maybe a little bit different than in other Christian traditions. Baptism is something that often happens, or, or maybe different, not different than the Catholic tradition, for example, but different than maybe some more evangelical or uh, charismatic traditions. The baptism process is, it's a commitment on the part of the parents to uh, keep their child engaged in this, in this faith community. And so it isn't a practice that, that you do consciously, uh, many, many parents opt to do it when their child is very small. So I was baptized when I was a month and a half, I think. So there was no, <laughs> there was no commitment on my part to, to be involved with that. I had no say. So I, and then the second part of that is confirmation. So that is a practice that is, I mean, borrowed from the Catholic tradition and is fairly similar 
to what it sounds like being baptized in the Sikh tradition is, where you make a conscious decision to learn about the tenets of your faith and commit to being part of it. But it often happens at a younger age in in the United Church. So I did it when I was 13 and many of, most of the other people in my confirmation cohort were around my age as well. And so looking back, I think it would have been interesting and different to approach it at, at my age. I'm 30 now. So to, to like you approach it as an adult, I, I don't know what that process would have been like. And I definitely have maybe some different interpretations of, of sort of those tenets or how I would approach them now. So it's a, sort of a two-step process and many people are baptized. So their parents make a commitment to involve them, but they don't actually get confirmed. So that's a, that's a much more intentional stage. And to your second question, I think the, the intention with, I can only speak for Broadview, I think the intention partially is to be a source of inspiration and to present people with, with not just interesting, but uh, hopeful stories of, of people uh, keeping their faith through difficult situations or finding new ways to approach it um, or new ways to, to see God in their everyday lives. And part of it is, yeah, is a resource, I would say, um, informationally in terms of bringing people perspectives or, or stories about issues they may not have heard about. And it's, um, it's an interesting process as well, because not uh, the faith backgrounds of folks on our staff are, are diverse and um, they have varying, everyone has varying levels of connection with the church um, or even with other faiths. And so that's really interesting, first of all, because it means we get a wide variety of perspectives. Um, but there still is a there still is a United Church root to it. And so we often try and tell stories of, of folks from that tradition. But I know that um, with other there are a couple other denominational publications. There's a, an Anglican publicate. There's the Anglican Journal um, and the Catholic Register. And those those perform similar roles. Um, Broadview, but I would say are much more focused on on the church and telling stories of, of that particular denomination. Emma, do you have any questions for Dalraj? Yeah, I was, I know that the that the first season of your podcast focused on mental health and how how folks are are trying to advocate around these particular issues or sharing their own personal journeys. Um, I wondered if there if sort of in your perspective, there is still some stigma in, in your community around those issues, um, that even though it sounds like this podcast is, is a way you're trying to, to combat that, if that is still an issue and, and the ways that you see it manifest, I guess. Um, and then I was also going to ask the one, I mean, there is a lot of conviction in, in both of our communities to, to study and to sort of outward expressions of faith. But um, the difference oftentimes is sort of outward sort of rituals um, and the sort of outward expressions of that in terms of sort of um, what folks wear. Um, and I guess that that question would relate to um, how much that is sort of a, um, is that something that is a part of becoming a baptized sick or is 
that optional um, and sort of the optionality of those sort of outward expressions of your faith um, in the broader, like how optional is that and how much is it just something you decide to commit to? Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of the first question, um, the stigma does exist. Um, that was part of the reason that the first season was undertaken um, by some of our, our team members. Um, and I, I guess I can kind of attribute that again to the generation before where it was more of, um, um, it was like survival of the fittest. Um, their, their first priority wasn't necessarily their mental health. It was more grinding it out until they knew that they were settled where they were. Um, the stigma now, um, it still does exist in some capacity, but there has been an improvement. Um, the podcast um, did get people talking, um, seeing the feedback from the community and even the different perspectives within that season alone, um, whether they be spiritual, whether they, they be professional opinions. Um, it, it had a lot to do with um, just getting uh, information out there and realizing that these conversations don't have to be hidden in religious settings or community settings that um, we can connect these topics back to our roots uh, in Sikhi and and find solutions and find methods of open communication or at least opening up those lines of communication and not making it a taboo subject and then again bringing those subjects up with parents how can we do that some of the guests were um, most of them were, were from our generation but some of them a bit older and they had had experiences of speaking with their parents and educating them about their situation and um, how we as I guess youth could do the same especially if we wanted to again maintaining a connection with Sikhi or any religion you you have to um, you want some kind of mental calmness or peace within um, or that's something you seek when when you, you uh, go down this path and um, sometimes it, again outside distractions um, school stress career um, it can it can all add up and it does take away from your spiritual development sometimes. So making sure that you're, you're keeping yourself, um, I guess, healthy and sane um, to, to pursue um, religion and spirituality as well. Um, in terms of the second question, I'm blanking out on it. Oh, yes, um, the elderly. So um, we have a concept in Sikhi called Bani and Bana. Bani is like the our, our Guru's writings. Um, those are our teachings, those are our hymns, reading those, and bana is the elderly, like what we wear. So, um, or our uniform, I guess, a Khalsa uniform. When we're baptized, uh, one of the things that aren't optional are uh, taking off the five Ks. So we're given five kakars, um, their case, which is uncut hair, um, a kada, which is an iron bracelet, a kanga, which is a wooden comb that stays within your hair, a kirpan, which is a small... Um, I guess some people define it as a ceremonial dagger, but uh, a small sword, I would say, and a kashara, which is basically like a pair of boxer briefs. Those five can't leave your body, um, and that's not optional. If you become baptized, you keep them on at all times. <laughs> that includes sleeping with the kirpan on. Um, when I shower, for example, I tie it around uh, my turban, um, but I keep them on at all times, as do all Khalsa Sikhs. So it's, it's creating that perfect balance between both. Again, uh, wearing a turban uh, goes into the outerly. Um, having turban up as one of our ES events, kind of, again, um, educating others about the outerly form of a Sikh, um, and then also connecting it to the innerly, um, why we wear a turban, um, the, the spiritual connection between 
we believe in a dasam duar, like the tenth gate, which is at the top of your head. Um, a turban uh, covers that spot, protects that spot, etc. So there's a lot that goes into it, but Bani and Bana are stressed as the two wings to the bird. Um, a bird can't fly with one wing. You you want to strive to have both. Bani is more important. Reading the scriptures, understanding the theology, and applying it to your life is more important than Bana um, because we feel that once you have the Bani, once you have that theological understanding and you, you understand why you do certain things, the outerly comes automatically. Um, if you do the outerly first, um, it, it's not always the same. It's not necessarily vice versa. If, if, you, can, if you can create that inner connection um, with, uh, with your conviction, I guess, um, that all usually automatically results in a want to represent it on the outerly too. Um, I know I'm ranting on for a bit, but I just wanted to mention, like for me, um, I didn't always have my hair. Um, I, they were, it was cut up until I believe I was seven. And then um, I, I asked my parents if I could keep it and they, they mm. let me. And after that, it became, um, I felt like I represented something more than myself. Um, I represented my guru because all of our gurus had kept their hair. They wore turbans. Um, I represented my community and that that acted as, as one of the avenues that I connected with my religion, with my community at a, at a deeper, um, deeper level. Um, so it is important to have both. Um, some things are optional, like you may notice that uh, some women don't wear turbans, some do. Um, but things like the 5Ks being on you at all times, uh, those are some things that are, are not optional once you're, uh, once you're baptized. That's such a lovely idea that the, the inner conviction um, guides the outer one, that the yeah. sort of inner connection to, to those tenets makes you uh, has a desire to want to, to do those. That's uh, yeah, that's a lovely way of thinking about it. Thank you. And also, don't come for Dalraj when he's in the shower because he will. <laughs> I'll be ready. Cut you. He's ready. <laughs> he's ready to throw down at all times. At all time. Literally, literally at all times. There's any? Uh, I mean, everyone's seen a scary movie where there's a uh, you know there's some creepy finger you know there's. Some, some scary creature, you know, coming to attack. So there you go. <laughs> you know, that's why I guess you haven't seen, uh, you know, sick guys or, or ladies, I guess, for that matter, you know, in in horror films, because they've always <laughs> ended the bad guy immediately. You yeah, know, see, there's no yeah. movie after that. Exactly. It wouldn't, it wouldn't get past, like, what, the five-minute mark? It would be, it would be fun. <laughs> See, we wouldn't be searching for kitchen knives to, to use as weapons. We'd have it on it. That's right. The rest of it is just an hour and a half of kirtan after that. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> In zombie movies, there's never any sick characters, and, and there should be. Yeah. That would be an interesting twist. Very, very interesting twist. Yeah, yeah. You can you can re redo The Walking Dead with um, uh, what's her name with the swords. You know. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Oh man, and you're a big UFC guy, right? So um, I. Uh, is that does that fit into the the sick martial arts also um yeah funny well i'm not too too big on like i don't know much about ufc but i love watching it um and <laughs> yeah like the sick martial arts like uh, historically it's been a lot of weaponry um knowing how to use swords um including guns bows uh ho horse riding um hmm. a, a lot of that stuff um but also in recent times like again hand-to-hand -hand combat um right. knowing how to well technically we're not allowed to use our weapons, um, unless we've exhausted all means, whether that be using our words, um, whether that be using our hands or legs. 
um, if all means have been exhausted, negotiation, etc., uh, and mm -hmm. things haven't come to um, us, I guess, a solution, then it's justified to pick up arms. Um, a lot of people feel that um, that that situation may never arise, but it has, um, and you you always want to be prepared. So um, yeah, UFC fits into it. You you want to know how to use your hands and legs. <laughs> you want to know how to get someone in the headlock and keep them in the headlock until they tap out. Um, yeah. But otherwise, yeah, using being able to use the kirpan and um, like bigger swords, um, arrows. I, I like um, practicing archery here and there. I'd love to start horse riding. I, I really want to do that soon. Um, but yeah, just uh, just being prepared uh, is is the goal essentially. See, I mean, forget forget horror movies. I don't know why there haven't been a million sick superheroes. Everything that you just described sounds like <laughs> you got to put them up there in the Justice League, you know? Yeah, that, so, that might be. Hey, maybe that's something uh, a project that Experience Key takes on. That uh, yeah, that for yeah. sure, for sure. You, yeah, you need to you need to lobby, you know, Marvel and and, and get somebody <laughs> get somebody in there. You know, we've got awesome. we've got Kamala Khan, who's the who is making the big splash as the first or not the first Muslim superhero, but you know, a major Muslim superhero and mm -hmm. over on their side. So we need to have yeah. a need to have a sick also right there. Awesome. And so many of these superheroes. I mean, they end up having to learn these skills, but if you have them already, it's... That's uh, right. been training true. since birth. <laughs> we need that, we need that, the, the Punjabi Black Panther, you know, who's, who's been out there, you know, handing down a legacy from generation to generation. Yeah, that, that'd be something. That'd be quite that a, that'd be, be quite an origin story, that first movie. I, I mean... Yeah, you, you know, honestly, I think if you if you replace that, if you go back to that that first scene in Black Panther with the guy in Oakland, and you just replace that with the mean streets of Toronto or something, and you know, it had been a hard scrabble immigrant kid or whatever that you know yeah. saw his 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 parents you know having to deal with with discrimination or whatever, and mm -hmm. has been training at the Gudwara and takes yeah. to the streets. I would love to I, see a film. First of all, filmed in Toronto. That's meant to be Toronto. Uh, that's. I mean, that's the fu that's the funny thing for BC is that you guys are always LA. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, and it took years to make the connection that um, all many of the X Men films were uh, filmed at Hadley yeah, Castle, which is um, which is a you know that castle that you're very familiar with. Um, that's right, right, right near my house. It's not. It's and not Westchester. Uh, but uh, yeah, I could I could totally see that a, a a sick superhero's origin story on the streets of Brampton. That would be oh watch the goodness. heck out of that collaboration oh with a, a UCC UCC member. That'd be that'd be something. Absolutely, <laughs> for new sort of digital projects and new ways to tell stories. So yeah, totally make that happen. Damn, that'd be so much fun. Oh man, I'm I I just got like excited to a whole other level about this conversation now. <laughs> And we have some writers and friends of the publication who are really into to comic stories. So I mean, we can we can get some minds on this. I I will shout out um, Sacred and Sequential, the the blog about about uh, and, you know doing um, uh, religious uh, academic uh, study and 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 comic book uh, analysis as well. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, get get in deep with those guys. I think there's there there'd be some cool crossover to to happen there. For sure. Yeah, I never heard of that. That's awesome. Thanks. 
Yeah, yeah, look up Sacred and Sequential. Um, a. Dave Lewis is, is I think, the brains behind, behind that, that project. He's a, a scholar out of Boston, um, Muslim convert, and the author of Man of Fate, Kismet. Kismet Man of Fate is the name of his book um, about a Muslim superhero in the 40s. It's an independent publication. Um, but yeah, 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 yeah. That guy gets deep. That guy gets deep. So um, totally connect with that one if you guys are interested. Yeah. Well, I hope that this, you know. I hope that this conversation will will lead to to some more of that, helping to make the connection between uh, experience Siki and and the UCC community um, through you guys. And and uh, Dalraj, you can you know take some lessons from from Emma and Broadview back to experience Siki, and and hopefully you know we'll see we'll see your your publication coming out at some point soon. Yes. And, <laughs> and likewise, you know, maybe there's some opportunity to uh, to do some guest writing or something over over at Broadview if if uh, to bring in an interfaith perspective, is, if there's some interest on that. Absolutely, that'd be awesome. Cool, cool, cool. Well, um, before we go, Emma, ways to to connect with you and in your publication. Oh, sure. I mean, um, social media wise, I'm on Twitter at Emma underscore Prest P as in Peter R E S T, and then you can follow Broadview. Please do that first. Um, we're Broadview Mag on Twitter, um, Broadview Magazine on on Facebook, and then. Uh, Broadview Magazine on, on Instagram as well. And our website is, is broadview.org. And we just, we have a new look to the top of our website that I'm very excited about. So please, please go visit it. <laughs> um, and definitely also check out uh, Emma's um, podcast, which is archived, right? Um, Congregation is, is still available on all podcast platforms, I believe. Yeah, you can find it on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on SoundCloud as well. So it's just um, Congregation. And if you search HuffPost Canada, it should show up there as well. It's, uh, it's a couple years old, but I think still some, some neat stories there. Yeah, still very good. Uh, and Dalraj, how about with you? Uh, ways to connect with you or experience Siki more broadly? Um, experience Hickey, uh, our handle is at Experience Hickey for Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, SoundCloud. Um, goes all the way uh, through all platforms. Our website is experienceakey.com. And you can also check out our podcast, the Experience Aki Podcast, season one and two, on uh, all podcast platforms. I believe that includes uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, um, and a bunch of others. If for some reason you want to connect with me directly, uh, my Instagram is singpoppy. I'm not too proud of it. It was my grade 11 creation, <laughs> but it stuck around. So um, if you want to connect with me there and you can always uh, email contact at experienceakey.com. I'm on the email often, so I can uh, definitely check that out as well. Let me tell you one of a true story. One of the dangers of following any uh, sick outlet or getting too many sick Instagram friends uh, is is I once I started doing that with with interfaith ish. My my feed started becoming full of suggestions to follow sick bodybuilders. So <laughs> interesting. interesting. <laughs> These dudes are cut. I don't know what the deal is with with bodybuilding in the sick community, but that's like whenever I go on the news feed now, it's all 
<laughs> all the suggestions are dudes flexing. Like I said, we're ready, you know? We're, we're always ready. <laughs> all right, well, thanks so much, guys. This has been, been terrific, and uh, I do hope that um, the two of you will stay in touch and hopefully connect uh, there in the Toronto area. And uh, God willing, if there's an opportunity for me to to make a run for the border up north, um, I'll, I'll be able to join you at some point soon to say hi. Oh, for sure, we'd love that. Yeah, for sure. All right, have a great day. Stay safe, be well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all, bye. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. Thanks again to Dalraj and Emma for joining me. I really hope they'll explore that Interfaith Justice League idea. That would be really cool. And I know, I know, before I hear from a bunch of Puritan comic book nerds issuing a fatwa on my fanboy status, I realize that I said we should talk to Marvel about the Justice League, the Black Panthers, and the Avengers. I realize my mistake. In my defense, I do think that any self-respecting Spinarak theologian would agree that the classic JLA is a much better mold for an interreligious superhero team concept. Although, since I was talking with Canadians, the real crime is that I blew an opportunity to name drop Alpha Flight. How could I have missed a chance to talk about Alpha Flight? And seriously, why isn't there a suave Savile Row Sikh superhero in Alpha Flight? Copyright on that ish. Jack Gordon, 2020. Anyway, as always, I'd like to give a shout-out to my own gang of super friends, those intrepid interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Check out our current series of crossover episodes, and I'm sure you'll find some new and exciting podcasts that go in-depth on traditions you may have never explored before. Follow us on social media at Interfaith-ish. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. And keep writing about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's interfaithish at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.